Lisa Crawley is a major theatre star in her home country of New Zealand, having been nominated four times for the equivalent Tony Award in New Zealand called the APRA Silver Scroll Award. She is a multi-talented actress, playwright, multi-instrumentalist, singer, and for this show, Backstory Song, she's a songwriter. She has completed two songwriter residences at the prestigious Banff Center, and she has been the opening act for Suzanne Vega, John Mayer, Jules Holland, Paul Weller, and Simply Red. She has recently teamed up with Grammy-nominated songwriter Rob Kleiner to create an EP called Looking for Love in A Major. She joins us on Backstory Song to discuss works from this new album and her previous singles. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today I am thrilled to have New Zealand-born indie pop chanteuse Lisa Crawley with us. Welcome, Lisa, to our show. Thank you, Doug. How are you? I'm well. So I have to ask you, I had someone on the show who was from Canada and I asked, what's the difference between Canadians and Americans? And they said, Canadians are polite. And I thought, oh, that's a great answer. So for an American, what is the difference between someone from New Zealand and someone from Australia? New Zealand is a more polite. Is that it? <laughs> is it the same, the same difference? <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I think that there are, there are a lot of similarities. If we're talking about just the accent, can you hear the difference? Yeah, a little bit, but I've been around different Australians and New Zealanders, or I guess Kiwis and Aussies, is that? That's correct, yeah. Okay, I don't want to say anything offensive, because sometimes I do that by accident. One of our biggest differences is our choice of Marmite versus Vegemite. Have you heard of either of those two spreads at all? <laughs> Only from the song, The Vegemite Sandwich from... Uh, oh, I haven't heard that song. Do you live in the d land down under? Oh, of course, for Colin Hay. Yeah. He hands me a Vegemite sandwich. <laughs> right, right. That's right. I have to change that when I'm performing that to the Marmite sandwich. No, I've had people try and send me Marmite and it hasn't reached me, you know, during the pandemic. They've got one at the supermarket, but it's the British one. It's not quite the same, but... I'm a Marmite girl, and most, I'd say 90% of Kiwis would prefer Marmite over Vegemite, and it has gotten to some uh, debates there. But the accent actually has, when I was a kid, I spent eight months in Australia for my dad's work, and I was bullied like I've never been bullied before. And, I, you know, I was always getting on with everyone at school in New Zealand, but when I got to Australia, I just have this memory, and I, I don't mean to treat you like a therapist, but I, I said, oh, you know, do you mind if I borrow your pencil? And they said, oh, no, because you can't say it properly. And they would make fun of me. And like, you know, it was, it was very, the kids were very cruel at that school to the point where I was stressed and I wanted to go back to New Zealand. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to go back to Australia. And I had this bad memory of Melbourne, but then I ended up living there for five years. So I made my peace eventually. But yeah, a few cultural differences, a lot of similarities as well. And I do love both countries and don't take too much offense when people ask if I'm Australian because I did spend that time there. But I have done a couple of voiceovers where I've had to do both versions of Australian and New Zealand. So there's a few inflections there that are kind of interesting to note as well. So you've come to Los Angeles now pre-COVID, but really have experienced this pandemic in Los Angeles. And you were a major theater star down under. 
So I feel like you have these models of like Bette Midler or Barbara Streisand or people who started in theater, you know, Kristen Chenoweth, who are multi-talented. You're a songwriter. I haven't seen you perform on the stage. I would love to see that. But, you know, you're cutting these amazing records with this newest one, with Rob Kleiner as your producer on this? I mean, legendary Rob Kleiner, who has produced CeeLo, Labyrinth, Haley Reinhardt, Sia, Britney Spears, Kylie Minogue, David Guetta, you know, amazing roster of other artists he's worked with. He has chosen to work with you, which is really... Isn't that nice of him? I met Rob in Hawaii at the songwriting conference, the Hawaii Songwriting Festival in 2018, which I was visiting America for a month. I was slowly putting this plan together to move there. And I wanted to make sure I was going ahead with all the visa processes. I was going to make sure it was the right decision. And I asked my friend who I went to high school with in New Zealand, who was living here, what she was up to around that time. And she said she was going to this Hawaii songwriting festival. I thought, oh, I want to go to that. So I did. And that's where I met a lot of people that I really kind of played a big part in me being able to stay in Los Angeles, really. Um, my sync licensing company, Think Music, I had a meeting with them and they ended up representing my catalogue of songs and pitching that to film and TV and getting me some placements, which has been wonderful. All that was a meeting. I remember being annoyed because you had to get up at 7am to put down the names of the mentors that or the people that you wanted to have meetings with. I was like, I'm getting up so early, oh gosh. I write these names down. These very eager young songwriters like getting up, oh, I'm going to get up at 6.30. I'm going to get, I was like, oh really? Oh God. But I was like, okay. Anyway, so I did that and I met Think music, which is the sync licensing company, two women from there who are wonderful. And I was just kind of met Rob while we were having lunch. We both liked a lot of the same things and he had a background in alternative music and I love a lot of indie music and the songwriting festival was, was pretty pop heavy. So it was, he was like interested in talking to me more about bands that we both liked that may have been a little different to the ones that were being celebrated there, I suppose. Yeah, and also randomly in that songwriting festival, I ended up playing Footloose with Kenny Loggins. So there you go. It was a very, very strange couple of days, but a very fun couple of days. And Rob's like, oh, you know John Bryant? Oh, you know, you, you like going to that bar in LA? That's crazy, yeah. And, you know, I think we'd write good songs together. So we kept in touch. And a year later, after leaving Melbourne, I did a residency at this place, wonderful place called the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity in, in Banff in Calgary. That's in Canada for those who may not know. After that, I came to LA for a couple of months. And um, during that time, actually, and just to backtrack to the Banff Center, I hadn't heard anything about my audition for this musical once. So I was having a day of just chasing things up and, oh, about how about that? And then he, the director goes, oh, I audition kind of got lost in the mix. Um, we've still got that role. That's the only one we haven't cast. Would you like to audition? So I called the woman in the cabin next to me. We've, I was at the Bam Center of all these cabins around this big, you know, snow area. I go, oh, do you mind reading this other part for me? And we did that. And anyway, so I had a plan. I was going to go back to New Zealand to do once, and I was going to spend two and a half months in Los Angeles before that to write as many songs as I could, go back, get my visa, and then come back again. So that's what I did. And part of that was Rob and I had wrote our first song, Tragedy Boy, got licensed in a show called Stumptown. So that was a great start. And then um, the second one we did together is actually on this EP. So that's a song that took the longest to actually make it out to other listeners. And I released that as a single, but it's also on this EP and that's clear history. But we got on really well and 
met his friends and now they're my probably my closest friends in Los Angeles and have been a saving grace throughout the pandemic. They included me on their Zoom movie club every Friday night, even though I was useless with reviewing movies. I didn't have a TV, so I was trying to find these movies on the internet, watch them in my little room. But just such a lovely group of people and, and his belief in me has meant a lot. And yeah, we were even writing a new song yesterday. We just finished. So yeah, very lucky to have worked with Rob and I've learned a lot and learned a lot about collaboration as well. And I've often felt quite on my own with writing music. So it's been really eye-opening being in Los Angeles and being in those rooms where you're forced to write a song. And even on a game show in Los Angeles, where you have to write a song in 17 minutes with your partner that you get paired up with. And I'm doing another one of those in a few weeks. It's called Top Tune. So I've, yeah, just these different ways of writing and, and collaborations here have been wonderful. And yeah, just really motivated me and inspired me. And I've learned a lot from these other people. So anyway, that's a long story about how I met Rob Kleiner. Well, so let's talk about Clear History. So the album is called Looking for Love, Perens in A Major. That's correct. Tell me where the title came from of the album first. Yes. So Looking for Love was a song that Rob and his well, our friend Kevin, they were in a band called Tub Ring together, Chicago punk band. And we thought, oh, let's hang out and write a song. And so we came up with this Looking for Love song. And so I had all these songs when I was thinking about, I really want to put out a collection of songs soon as something to work towards, even for my own, just my, myself as well, rather than, you know, other people like, oh, I'd love to do a full length record, but just due to the circumstances of not really, I mean, I'm a full-time musician. I earn purely make a living of playing live shows and, and getting songs licensed and things. So Throughout the pandemic, I didn't move with a lot of savings. Um, so I was really, really, you know, roughing it, I suppose, for, for my own. It's very humbling, I suppose, as a lot of people have found 
last year and a half. But moving over with not much more than a couple of suitcases and a keyboard. I go, oh, well, you know, maybe it's a little bit difficult to put out a full length record because for me, the work that you put into it is so important that the work that you put into other people hearing it is also important. And so I wanted to make sure that whatever I was going to be doing, it was, I did what I could to get it out to the universe. And it, an EP just seemed like something easy, easier to fathom. And I thought, oh, what collection of songs would, would work best? So I found these five songs and I go, oh, these are all in A major. Am I allowed to put out a whole group of songs that are in the same key? I'm pretty obsessed with keys. Like for me, D flat's my favorite key. Um, it has a whole different vibe to something that I would hear in C. I play in C a lot because I'm, if I'm playing a jazz song because it's less sharps and flats and I'm, I'm being lazy, it's the easiest key to play in. No, but different keys provide a whole different mood to me and I find it really hard to switch off in terms of labeling notes that I hear outside. Oh, that air hockey puck hitting the thing was an E flat and well, that's that. So yeah, Looking for Love was the collection of songs. One of them is called that, but it just seemed like fitting as a group of five songs that was going on a bit of a journey. The first one's about looking for love. The second, you know, trying to navigate how to go about a relationship and, and saying things the right way and, and hindsight and, oh, what should I do? And awkwardness and anxiety. And then Lazy Love is like, yeah, maybe this isn't so great. And then the fourth one is, oh, I want to clear that history. And the fifth one is, okay, now it's my time. So it's like my own little journey that hopefully other people might be able to relate to of, yeah, just songs that are love songs or about love or questioning love. Um, so that's why I put those together as a unit and then brackets in a major bracket was kind of like in a major, like maybe non-musicians think in a major what? Like, But I also remember... <laughs> I think 20 years ago, Alicia Keys put out this record as also um, songs in A minor, now that I think about it. But I was always um, really obsessed with keys and with pitch, and I played a lot of recorder growing up, and I played piano and played in orchestras and concert bands. And so often these songs that we we're doing would include the key that they were in. So, you know, you see on Spotify even now, or Apple Music, or yada, yada, songs, Bach or Mozart or whatever, it will include the key. And so that was my little nod to that music nerd inside of me. <laughs> so Clear History is in A major. Yes, it's in the relative minor, actually. F sharp's the first, F sharp minor is the first chord. But yeah, that's overall, it's in the key of A. Yeah. It's in the key of A, broadly speaking. This song reminded me of a Talking Heads song. But New Wave, it has this New Wave feel, like this throwback feel to it, at least in the beginning. And then the chorus shifts into this gorgeous, bright pop <laughs> sound. But tell me where this song came from. So that one came from writing in a room with Rob, actually. And I was always a big fan of when the internet first came out, what it was, I don't know, 1995 or whatever, whatever year it was, it was like, I remember getting my first computer and being obsessed with all these like retro computer games and screens and internet and like weird Microsoft DOS and like chat rooms and all this bizarre stuff and downloading the South Park themed desktop screensaver. And I would spend ages and I had my own GeoCities website 
for my little acting jobs I was doing, and and I spent ages on it. GeoCities was the first MySpace that Yahoo spent a billion dollars buying and it went defunct, but it was the precursor to Facebook and MySpace for our listeners who are not old enough to remember GeoCities. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't drop that in there. Just no, no, no. I have useful. a friend who worked there and uh, and no loved it. It was. Can they find my first website? I would love to find that. I, I've spent a while looking for it. I mean, there was like, you know, the angel fight. I feel like I knew more about websites than I do now. I peaked too early, I think, perhaps. But I was been ages on that. And anyway, so I was always kind of like geeking out on funny, nostalgic internet things. So the idea of clearing your cage, clearing your history was, um, yeah, sort of inspired by that. And, and Rob also is geeked out about over that stuff. And Oh, do you know there's a GeoCities Isa? You can make any website look like it was made in 1996 if you type the website in. Oh, really? Anyway, so the clear history thing um, was obviously like a metaphor for clearing your brain, clearing your memories that may not have been so pleasant. And so the metaphor of, you know, fixed on a screen that couldn't be saved is sort of talking about our relationship and trying not to um, dwell on things and, and move on, which can be difficult. I very much feel this is a move on song, which is a little bit different. You know, I interview a lot of songwriters about love songs and about breakup songs. And this doesn't fall into the breakup category. It really falls into the recovery and move on, the clear history, the delete, the memory, you know. Reset, delete. Yeah. It's like you've broken up, that's over, that's behind. And now it's time to move on. And so maybe there should be a whole category of songs about moving on. And I actually have interviewed some people about moving on on the show, the move on song, because the breakup is one thing, but let's not talk about that anymore. It's time to move on. It's moving on. That's right. And it leans towards those moments that you can have, oh, it's late and I'm falling back into that neg pattern. No, no, don't, don't let your brain go there. Be mindful of what's happening and, you know, um, things what they are. I suppose the last song on the EP, My Time, is a little bit like a move on song as well, or moved on, or deciding that you're definitely moving on and celebrating yourself. I love that. I think uh, maybe Rob came up with the guitar chords and then just, yeah, I love a lot of 90s music and culture as well. And I think the song kind of leans in that direction to a sense as well. But I love the talking heads. So and and Split Ends and bands like that and worked with Tim Finn from Split Ends quite closely on a few projects. And I just came up with these layers of vocals and he goes, oh, we'll try this layer. And yeah, he's the best vocal producer. So a lot of fun working together on that one. That was a second song that we wrote together out of maybe what's been about like maybe 14 songs now or something. So The layers of sound in this EP are just exciting to listen to because every listen, I hear something new and different. And I am wondering constantly, what is he playing? What instrument? Is that a synthesizer creating that that sound? What I like about Clear History is the shift from the pre-chorus to the chorus where you go into this bright poppiness when I saw a shape that looked like you. And then you hit this really high note, this high octave on Clear History. Oh, yeah. You shift, which is just beautiful. You have such a beautiful voice. I like listening to it. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's still one of my favorites, that one um, of songs that I've written with Robin just in general as well. And I love that our skill sets seem to complement each other as well. Like 
with chords and progressions and things and he's, he's so quick with cool drum and bass grooves. So I've learned a lot about that and, and writing to a beat, maybe trying that way and rather than it having to be, oh, I've written all these lyrics and let's see, you know. So even yesterday we wrote a, a new song about being – it's so tired that even Face ID doesn't recognize you. <laughs> 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 it's just something that I was experiencing firsthand. Yeah, I was like, oh, geez. I mean, I know the masks can stop that happening, but, yeah, it was just uh, funny because I was like, really? And you feel like you oh, got a cold. So, oh, geez, okay, Face ID doesn't even recognize me. Anyway, we've both got, you know, like the same kind of silly co- British comedy shows and sense have a similar sense of humor. So, yeah, I really appreciate him and his, his partner have been just so lovely to me in Los Angeles and very grateful for that connection. And hopefully he's – enjoyed working with me too either that or he was just he was really sorry for me <laughs> I'm just kidding I'm just kidding yeah uh, his belief in me means a lot and he's introduced me to some wonderful people as well so yeah and you certainly have the talent too so I was going to ask you about the line I thought you were my one direction is this a reference to the Harry Styles Zane Malik band were you a fan um well I've just been I've just been talking about GeoCity, so I think the generation just kind of overlapped each other. Um, <laughs> so no, I mean, I I've been I've been I'm a late bloomer to Harry Styles' music. I mean, sure, I was like, oh, One Direction, you know, yeah, there was a little a little tiny joke there, but I haven't been looking for my own One Direction band member in terms of romanticizing that. Yeah, I like little silly jokes like that as well. So like, nicely spotted. <laughs> you weren't obsessed with the band. No, I was obsessed with the Spice Girls and the Backstreet Boys, if that gives you an indication of my age. But I appreciate, like, Harry Styles has got some really great songs. And I think there's a Kiwi girl, someone that's spent a lot of time in New Zealand that plays keyboards for him. So that's pretty cool. I wrote down bubbly electronics when I listened to this song. I was like, I really like that bubbly sound that Rob and you create. I also wrote down, do you think relationships are like smartphones? Oh, is this a joke? Is this one of the dad jokes? No, this is not a dad joke. I know I do bad dad jokes. No, but no. Maybe good, it is good, a bad dad, good joke. dad joke. But like, you know, on your smartphone, you clear your history. And I was like, and you delete and you... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you need to manage your memory, uh, you know, on your smartphone. As I was listening to this, I was like, oh, she's saying that relationships are like smartphones. Absolutely. That's exactly what it browses and, and all sorts, you know, looking up a certain like medical problem. Oh, I don't want them to see that rash that I've been looking up or something. Um, I'm just, just kidding. But yeah, we, we do delete things to make room for other things. I've spent four hours on the phone to Apple last week trying to figure out my iCloud and just had to go through and delete all these photos. And it's like, what do you choose that you delete? What means more to you than something else? And why? what makes the cut and why? So yeah, there is that metaphor that that's kind of how the song started. It's using that idea of deleting memories and people, I suppose. I don't I don't have any people I've like permanently tried to delete in my life in a, in a weird way or anything, but it's just, we do that. We've got a certain amount of capacity, I suppose. And I've had painful memories that I either try to sometimes forget about and move on other times, just acknowledge them for being what they were. And yeah, so you're, you're on the, on the money there. You know, I remember getting my first mobile phone. I'm not sure it was a smartphone. And I do sort of remember getting my first smartphone. And I remember thinking, oh, this this is going to be with me forever. <laughs> and that's like 20 phones ago. Was it a BlackBerry? 
Yeah, well, it was precursor to the BlackBerry. It was the old Motorola brick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, actually, you know, but I've gone through 20 pieces of hardware. I mean, I, I guess that it's easier to replace a smartphone in some cases than an actual relationship. You know, relationships last longer. But now you get to, like, take the memory from one smartphone and port it into the new one that you get. So you don't lose if you want to. But if you want to delete and clear the history, you can. Although if we're going to get really deep into it, I did purchase two terabytes of storage, but my phone won't let me have those on there. So I can't take any new photos without deleting all these things. And it deletes it from the two terabytes of storage on iCloud. So I don't know what kind of metaphor you could go into there. But anyway, it's all, I've had the worst luck with technology. Um, Someone told me I should buy a crystal because of my bad luck with technology that would sit there and fix everything. But I've had like three computers die in the last year. So make what you will of that. But no. <laughs> I think the whole crystal idea is a very Californian and especially maybe San Francisco and Southern California thing. I don't know if it's people are into the crystals to solving problems in Melbourne or New Zealand. You can tell me, is that a thing down under? To give you some context, I grew up thinking that horoscopes were evil because of my upbringing, I suppose. I got, so I didn't even really delve into that. I just thought, oh, that's, that's a bit, that's a bit weird and that's a bit wrong. So I'm sure that it's out there in New Zealand, but in no way that LA is. And I don't, I don't think like that anymore. I'm, it's, it's interesting to me. It's not evil at all. It's just these things that I grew up with as a young churchgoer. But yeah, I, I don't know. There seems to be a lot more of it in LA. Sometimes I forget that I'm in LA because of the time moving two months here before the pandemic. I was like, mainly have seen just my walls on my studio apartment. And I forget that I'm in Los Angeles. And now I'm working at this I got a weekly gig at a, a members club in West Hollywood and playing piano there. And the people watching is really amazing. I'm like, oh, I actually am not in West Auckland anymore. And you're playing like request songs or your own repertoire or covers or like the full gamut. Yeah, I've only done four weeks so far because of just the pandemic things. But it's a, it's a very um, interesting club. Our members have to put stickers over their camera phones. So they're not going to be taking photos that they will need to clear their history for, um, I suppose, in that regard, because uh, you're not allowed to do that just as a privacy thing. And so, yeah, I'm the, I'm the piano entertainer, pianist, vocalist there. And other times, yeah, and even just getting out and about and seeing things that I, I mean, I've still yet to go to the Hollywood Bowl and see the Greek theater and there's so many iconic things. Yes, the Troubadour and, and legendary clubs of, of Los Angeles. Yeah. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So reckless, so nervous, borrowed everything. 
talk about Baby It's Fine, written in B flat. Um, <laughs> this is a love song, but it has a certain melancholy aspect to it. Yeah, you're not wrong there. It is in B flat. I wrote that song uh, while I was at the Banff Center in Canada. Um, my first trip there, that was 2017. I was doing a songwriter's residency. And well, there's a line about stepping into the snow because that was you know, where I was at the time. But the song is, I wasn't singing it to anyone in particular, but more so myself, I suppose, and, and trying to reassure yourself not to, not to read into things too much. I think I was with somebody at the time and it was quite early to be going away and I, I was maybe a little anxious about that. And so it's that reassurance thing. But I remember when a couple of the other people doing residencies helped me with the chorus, just a few words here and there. And, and it was really fun to write that song and develop that more while I was there and ended up recording that song back in New Zealand on a trip back. I guess you call it back home. That's probably my home. I still think of it. I've got a few homes now. I One of my homes with my oldest friend, Alistair Deverick, who's been my drummer for a well, my friend and old bandmate from a high school band. And yeah, one of my closest friends, um, he produced that. And my cousin, uh, Mark, who is a wonderful, wonderful songwriter under the name Merck, um, who's just put out his album. He played bass and guitars on that. And so that was a nice little collaboration that began at the BAMP Center. So I really like the way you sing baby. Oh, cool. You know, that is a word that has been sung in a lot of different ways, but you really kind of stretch it out and make it your own in this. That was the first time I've ever sung that word, I believe. Not like singing a lot of people's songs, but for my own songs, I didn't really have my own baby song. Well, now you do. Baby, it's fine. Baby, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of like the way you marry that vocal with no dark and you sing dark with the same intonation. So it's kind of like echoes mm -hmm. th that in a way that resonates with me for some reason. Oh, I'm glad I did something right there. <laughs> well, what were you trying to accomplish there? Yeah. Um, I guess it's almost like a little lullaby, a little indie pop lullaby. <laughs> I remember watching uh, Dumbo that had baby da 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 da. I have songs like, you know, little songs from Dumbo and uh, Disney movies and that kind of just sweet, sweet reassurance, but no dark thoughts tonight. A lot of dark thoughts of, and negative thoughts have ruined a lot of cool things for me in the past. So it's telling myself, no dark thoughts tonight, just enjoy the moment and something can just be nice and just something doesn't have to go wrong. Yeah. When I hear the baby, it takes me back to Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey in that dance sequence when she goes, sings that 60s song where it's like, baby, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. And she does that. And it brought that to my mind. I'm going to have to re go and rewatch that and, and listen to that. Yeah. That was a great movie. It was really, and that's like a great sequence in a great movie. Yeah. There's nothing like green eyes on green eyes is the lyric mm -hmm. in the song. What does that mean? Well, there's nothing like green eyes on green eyes. I think I was just trying to be romantic. Most people think I have blue eyes, but I have green eyes. So... I think I was just thinking, you know, I like green eyes a lot. And there was nothing too profound in, in that sentence. But then it goes, oh, people were saying, oh, is that about jealousy? And I was like, no, I, I didn't even think of the green-eyed monster when it came to that section. And then I go, oh, damn it. Damn, people are going to think it's about me being jealous or someone being jealous. But it's just meant to be a sweet, I'm loving looking at you and I love 
you looking at me and it's really nice. Yeah. So you found a green eyed bow to look into. Probably a green eyed cat, to be honest. Like I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've dated any, any guys with green eyes, but yeah, there is just that sentiment. And there's so many songs about blue eyes. I've got to bump up the green eye ratio. Yeah, Green Eyed Lady, you're my baby. Okay, yeah, it's probably you can probably list a lot. There's Coldplay's got his own good green eyes, and Elton John's got his blue eyes. Baby's got blue eyes, you know. Yeah, a lot of blue eyed songs. Mm. Brown eyed girl. Brown eyed girl. Is, you know, there's you know brown eyed song, but Hazel doesn't get much of a representation either. There's something for you to work on. Let's you know, you and Rob can do a Hazel eyed song. Yes, yes. There's a break with. Is it a clarinet in this? Yes, it's my clarinet. That's you playing clarinet? Yeah, yeah of course. Oh, I do wow. my own stunts as much as I can. I played clarinet my whole life. So I started playing recorder when I was four. And so I picked up the clarinet around 10, I think, and have played that my whole life. The quality of how I've played it has, has differentiated. I've been in concert bands and orchestras, and that for me is... Yeah, just an instrument I enjoy playing. I don't play the sax or clarinet. I've like, sorry, or, or flute. I've played, oh, I mean, I've dabbled a little bit, but I, I played the bassoon during high school as well. And yeah, but the clarinet's been something I've been playing for a long time and I don't practice it very often, but I do like to use it as a tool for songwriting and arrangements. And playing those wind instruments in the past has allowed me to write arrangements for other horns as well and just kind of think like a horn player. Love it when it comes in because it's not an instrument you hear a lot on rock, pop, or alt-indie albums. And so it comes in and it's like this sort of throwbacky big band sound, you know, of Tommy Dorsey. But it's not. It's modern. And it's like, oh, that's cool. That's so unique. And the producer of that song, Alistair Deverick, he has known me long before I started playing clarinet, since I was four years old. And he's like, play it worse. Play it. Play it breathier. Play it, you know. More rock and roll or like... Yeah, just don't make it sound too perfect. Just kind of keep it like, you know, I guess that was going for the indie approach. And I don't know, there's there's a couple of artists that I, I'm really inspired by their clarinet arrangements and songs as well. So I've I've used that in, like, done my little clarinet arrangements in about a lot in my first full-length album, a little bit in my second, and in singles that I've put out more recently as well. I've used that in one of the songs in the EP, Lazy Love as well. Yeah, but I love the kind of hearing the different notes and trying to make up arrangements on the fly, writing parts out for other people. And there was a song that I arranged for the Auckland Symphony. That was a real fun challenge because I got to use that part of my brain. I go, does that note work with that? But yeah, I, I, it was fun putting that in Baby It's Fine. And, and I liked how Alistair was kind of coaching me how to play it for the right the tone, for the right vibe for that little solo. So you're writing Baby, It's Fine, and what like goes off in your head that says, oh, this needs a clarinet solo right here? Oh, it's my default now. But uh, no, I go, what can I put in there? Because I was in the studio with um, Alistair and, and Mark, and I was just, I'm all about using what's in front of you when possible. So it was just something that I had with me and just kind of went for it spontaneously. And it seemed to work, yeah. So I had the main clarinet part and then just the backing ones underneath. And I was like, oh, is that too out of tune? He's like, no, but out of tune is cool. Keep it like that. So 
Yeah, a lot of fun. And and it was a, a happy, I wouldn't say it was an accident, but it was just, you know, something that seemed to work. So really happy with how that turned out. mentioned jealousy earlier and one of your songs that is squarely about jealousy is wedding band wedding band the title is overtly a double entendre yes yes tell us what this song is about and where this comes from this song about jealousy and double entendres well, the double entendre, I will be honest, I didn't kind of realize till afterwards. Largely what it was influenced by was when I moved to Australia, I did so many weddings that I would go home and, and be playing so much music that I didn't want to sit down and write a song. I wanted to just zone out. And I was like, that's not what I moved here for. This is not not what I want to do. So write about what you know. So I, uh, I wrote a song called <laughs> Good Wedding Band, and it's a story of somebody that uh, goes away to, is, you know, with somebody and then goes away to find themselves, to live their dreams, to, you know, make sure they don't have any regrets in life and sacrificing a relationship as a result of that and then comes back and things may not have gone as planned and you are back singing at your ex's wedding. And with that, because I was doing these weddings and I didn't even know whose they were until I got there. So I didn't stumble upon playing at an ex's wedding, but I thought this would be so easy for that to happen. That did cross my mind. What like ex-boyfriend would hire his ex-girlfriend to sing at his wedding? <laughs> and his fiance would agree to that. <laughs> but I guess it could happen. <laughs> it could happen because... We, as much as they like to think, you know, we, we're part of a big pool of musicians for these couple of agencies and they just go, here's your worksheet and you just put the address in and you show up and you learn this couple of key songs that you need to and then you just do your thing. You play a couple hours worth of music 
that you all know together and you meet the band on the night. I don't even know who I'm playing with half the time. You just show up and go, oh, nice to meet you. Oh, let's do that song and that key. Okay, let's go. And so the same goes for the clientele and the, and the wedding. So unless your couples could come and check out some of the musicians at a showcase evening and they could pick their wedding band, it's like, you know, wedding singer idol, wedding idol, the American idol for wedding singers or something. But um, often that would only happen every now and then, but most of the time they would just trust the agency to put a band together. So you just show up and yeah. And a couple of times I ran into, I was in Australia doing these weddings and I ran into people from New Zealand that I didn't know were going to be at this wedding. And so I just thought my imagination carried on and go, what else could happen? And so that's how wedding band came about. And before that I would also, you know, people have seen the wedding singer with Adam Sandler and have an idea of what wedding singing must be like, or some people thinking it's a strangely like a very glamorous, fun party job all the time. And I oh, must meet so many cool people. And I started to entertain myself by filming things I found amusing and of real weddings, whether it was funny or sad or beautiful or depressing. And I would start taking photos of myself in the booth because they'd have these photo booths just of me looking kind of how I was feeling that night. And so this footage and these photos that amused me, I ended up influencing the song as well. So I cut together a music video that was didn't have, a, have the budget for anything fancy, so I made one on my phone combined with travel footage that I took when I went traveling around the Philippines um, for, a, for a holiday. And, yeah, it was just a video that made myself laugh. And, and I think Vice Magazine liked the kind of, I quote, bratty nature of, of that. And, like, they, they did an interview about what it was like being a wedding singer. And I'm really, really grateful for that work, and I learned a lot. And the musicians that you work with are just so talented but everyone's got to pay the bills. So yes. So the whole idea of, I mean, I, I'm all for trying to uh, get on with exes (laughs) (laughs) and you know, it's not about one, one situation necessarily, but I just thought it would be funny if that ended up happening and it could very well happen and just, you know, Oh yeah, I really want you to be happy. And we would go, Oh yeah, I just want you to be happy, but we really want you to succeed. I really want you to do well in your music or whatever. And then people, you know, this this funny little comment about I want you to be happy, but I want her to be sad because she's lighting up the room and I'm singing with the wedding band. And yeah. You know, it's a great punchline to the song, you know, because it's like, I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy throughout the song. And then you get to the last version of the chorus and you just kind of get the jealousy out there. But I want her to be sad. It's, it's like a little, like, little honest comment. And I would have to look at myself and work on my issues if that was something that I was putting out to people. But yeah, it was just like a little funny joke to myself. And I'd usually play it on these, this instrument when I'm playing live shows. You, I was wondering, I wrote down, is that an accordion? Oh, this is a cue chord. So when I play wedding band, this cue chord, Suzuki cue chord, QC1 for any uh, cue chord nodes out there. This is the one song wedding band that I play on this instrument. It's my little band in a box and it's got, it's really fun. And I ask people to sing along in the chorus doing echoes and um, yeah, it's one of my favorite songs to play live actually, just because of the storytelling nature of it and using this instrument as well. If I don't have the full band. Now I had a question for you. This is jealousy from a female wedding singer's perspective, but certainly a, a woman's perspective. Do you think there's a difference between female jealousy and male jealousy? Yes. Oh, what is that? Well, I have to tell you while I remember though, 
it's not just the wedding singer being jealous of the bride. <laughs> One time a female friend of mine who also plays keys and sings, the bride didn't know there was going to be a female in the band and insisted she moved right to the back of the room, back of the stage, not at the forefront. So <laughs> that may be a little example. She only wanted men up front. The bride didn't want another woman on the, in the limelight, I suppose. And, and if that's the biggest issue, um, you know, if that's an issue on your wedding day, then, you know, they have a saying in, they have a saying in improv comedy when you're trying to make up scenes, if this is true, what else is true, you know? And uh, yeah, good luck with that. Um, saying that, you know, I've, I've definitely over the years struggled with sometimes backing myself enough and believing that in my music or in myself. Um, and that's been an ongoing process, but I've tried to own that as much as possible rather than project onto anybody else. Um, I don't know if I could describe the difference between male and female jealousy. I think there's a lot of bravado and a bit of male jealousy and, and women can be more subtle and yeah, it's just an energy that you can definitely pick up on, but I try not to have it as a part of my life and, and to, to own it if I do or, go say hi to someone that you're intimidated by and just normalize them as a person as well. Cause everyone is, most of the people are dealing with the same things, no matter who they are. Yeah, no, it's a seven deadly sin. And, uh, at least in this song, the woman is much more sneaky about it. Whereas I think a man probably would have, you know, started a fight at the wedding and the woman just kind of she's smiling says at the very end of the song, you know, I hope you're sad. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I wish you all the best. Really, really, I do. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> oh, I love your dress. I have that one, but it's like the model up, or I've got the next one, or is that, oh, is that from Target? That's so cute. You know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd own it, be like, yeah, Target, it's the best. Uh, I, yeah, so.
let's talk about birds. I really like this song. It's different than some of the other songs that I listen to of yours. It's very piano based and um, it doesn't rhyme in the first two choruses, which is really cool. I love songs that are melodic and you don't even notice that they don't rhyme, but you still are engaged with listening to them without the rhymes. And, and so maybe tell me about birds. Yeah, birds is my my own little song. I think every songwriter has got a song called Birds or about birds or something. <laughs> I wrote this as lyrics first, and it was just about me feeling out of place at the time and not really knowing where I would where I fit it in or the right place, like the right music genre or the country that was right for me or what I should be wearing on stage and sort of about like. You know, I want to do this, but I can't do that because that's the problem. Or I want to sing songs with the birds, but I scare them. Like never feeling in your own head that you're winning without being too self-deprecating, just kind of being honest and and a little bit sad. I suppose I there was this, a scene in Auckland, New Zealand, that my brother was heavily involved with, like brought over a lot of bands from overseas and also puts on a lot of nights. And I was so intimidated by these people that would come to his shows that were so cool. So when I was... In high school, I would try and go along to these shows, but I was like, all oh, these beautiful girls with their cool fringes and their floral dresses. And, you know, they were looking at me thinking that I'm a dork or like whatever, and just worrying way too much, being riddled by what other people think. Um, that's birds for me. Yeah. Just being like, well, everyone else is taken, so I'll be myself, even if I'm struggling with it. <laughs> hmm. Well, we're glad you are yourself. Is there a French horn on this or is that trombone. a synthesizer? A trombone, okay. So everything comes back to the recorder for me. I mean, my friend Oliver Emmett, who I knew from a recorder orchestra, we're both in as like 10 or 11-year-olds. Um, we ended up at the same high school. Also did a couple of community theater shows together, Bad Deli the Witch and a few others. Anyway, I've always had a huge place in my heart with this guy, Oliver, who's always been so musically gifted and he played trombone in my band for as long as we were both in New Zealand. And anytime he could bring his trombone and, and it's not the most conventional setup necessarily the band that I would have, but I would just love the people and they're just blown away by their talent so much. I would kind of work the lineup around whoever was there. So a couple of breakfast TV performances were me, guitar and trombone, for example, or there was a performance in the town hall with just me and three trombones. <laughs> so, no yeah. So I also had, for a while, a couple of years, I had this band, um, Lisa Crawley and the Conversations, and that was drums, bass, guitar, acoustic guitar, pedal steel, trombone, and me. So whoever was could make it, we would make it work and I had so much fun and I learned so much from those guys and just I love following their projects. But, yeah, Oliver was a very versatile yeah, he plays a bit of everything, but just trombone, he would come up with the coolest parts and he's so funny and yeah, just had so much taste with the notes that he and didn't play and, and that all that sort of thing. So felt very lucky to have captured him on those songs when I did, even on my first EP as well. It's got a lot of trombone on it as well. So yeah, hopefully we'll reunite. <laughs> I've never heard the expression breakfast TV. I think we call it morning television here, but I never thought about actually what that must be like, you know, to be a late night artist having to get up with your trombone friends and go on breakfast TV because you probably have to get there pretty early on set. And Yeah, that one that I'm thinking of was a particular struggle because we were doing a music video until two in the morning and 
had to get there at six and then they didn't have music. They're not as organized as you with your technology and they didn't have a way that we could hear each other. So the guitarist couldn't hear my keyboard because there were no onboard speakers. There was no kind of way. So he had to look at my hands and we played it that way. And yeah, it was, it was a, not ideal, but we got through it. That was for a song called Brother I'm thinking of. So, yeah, that was breakfast TV, morning morning show TV was, is always a bit of a struggle. And I have such anxiety about waking up in time that I would set like 20 alarms. And it's that feeling of getting up to go to the airport, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. You don't sleep well, even though you want to. And Yeah. yeah. And I had another um, breakfast TV moment where... I keep saying breakfast TV where I was wearing really silky trousers and I kept slipping off the chair as I was playing and all these, you know, funny things while you're going on live TV and smiling and, and hoping that it sounds good. But yeah, Birds um, was, is, but especially was one of my favorite songs to play with a band because I'd get to play a floor tom and I don't know, I just felt really connected to that song um, and had some really, really nice comments about it from people and even was sent a video of someone, a young girl singing it for her school talent quest. It's so sweet. So you played the drums on it? Oh, no, I just thought there was just one floor, Tom. And I, I mean, so yes, yes, I did. I played a drum on it. A drum. A but main, mainly drum. live. But yeah, that was just... <laughs> Because I like the way it has this light drum that comes in and then it goes to a heavier drum. It's a slight crescendo. It's not like a, you know, Pearl Jam rave up crescendo, you know, that just explodes, you know, with passion at the end, but it's like this subtle crescendo in the song, which is not usually how songs go. They usually kind of rave up hard and you kind of just bring it up, but not, not to 11, you know, like in Spinal Tap, you know, just to like seven in the song. Yeah. Seven will do. Yeah. 11 will be my next, my next one. Crank it. What does it take to get your attention? Too much to say, too much to mention. You're something I never know, a brand new invention. You got everything, and still I'm overthinking. I could write you something clever. Try be a bit more left of center. Seeing one inside and saying do not enter And now I'm trespassing I better leave the scene And what I'm trying to say It never comes out the right way I put the missing mistake Wish I could about the right way 
Because this does start with drums and a sort of subtle haunting organ. Uh, yeah, the sort of organy robes thing. Yeah. The drums were played by my friend Alistair, but Rob Kleiner put the drums in originally and then just wanted to add a little bit more. So Alistair did them live from New Zealand. But right away we wrote, it was one that we wrote at the beginning of last year. And I don't know, inspired musically by kind of like older, older tracks. Like I was just messing around with the chord progression. And I really love Roy Orbison and the Beatles and things like that. So kind of reflecting on those chord patterns and Rob goes, oh, that's, that's cool. What did you do there? And sometimes I needed him to be like, that's cool. And I was like, this is good. But yeah, still have with still some pop sensibility of those kind of just classic progressions. But I was also listening to a lot of the Magnolia soundtrack, you know, the John Bryan and just love those little different patterns. Like it went to in the bridge, just kind of, kind of take something that you don't quite expect, but it's not, it's not crazy. And I'm like, well, what's this? It's just like, Oh, that's interesting. And lyrically just about hindsight and being comfortable and, and go, Oh, that's what I should have said. Whether it's in a relationship or sticking up for yourself or whatever context. So this is the first single off your album? Clear History was... Oh, Clear History was. This is your new single. Yeah, Right Way is the most recent single and had a lot of fun putting together a music video for this one because it wasn't just by myself in my room. It was <laughs> with this wonderful woman I met at a bar at a songwriter night the start of last year, one of the only few times I went out before the pandemic, I guess, and followed her Instagram and her filmography and... And she's a wonderful DOP as well. And she very kindly uh, agreed to collaborate on The Right Way for me. With She put together this very thorough, clever treatment and owe a lot to her for putting the whole video together. You mentioned that it was inspired by Roy Orbison and John Brion uh, from Magnolia. And I, I think there's probably no two artists who are as haunting in their compositions or you know, certainly Roy Orbison's voice has got this natural hauntingness to it. And then yet they're able to shift into bright, hooky choruses. And I love that about this song, the shift from the verse into this really hook-laden chorus, which you write great hooks, by the way. And so tell me how you do this. Where does it come from? Oh, um, I suppose I'm usually a verse person first, but... The chorus of this one came up because, well, literally, it's like, what am I trying to say? Often that's what I think with the chorus. I'm like, okay, I've given all these details in the verses and usually like, you know, throwing lyrics at people when they're processing that. And then it's like, okay, well, what do you want them to take away from it ultimately? You know, how is that going to stick in their head the best way? And, and so for the right way, it's literally what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that's the first line of the chorus. And yeah, I tried to keep melodically pretty simple. It's quite similar to the verse, but a little bit different as well. We've got this different bridge before that to kind of, oh, okay. Well, actually the, that one, the chorus comes in before the first pre-chorus, then the second verse, and then the pre-chorus. So that's a different kind of formula for me doing that song, but it seemed to work. And we're figuring out, piecing it together. Oh, should we do two pre-choruses in, in a row before the very last chorus? And are we allowed to do that? Oh, of course we can. We can do it if we want. So yeah, it was a fun, fun process, but I tried to keep it <laughs> as memorable as possible, not overload people with too much of a big chorus in terms of like having 
20 lines in a chorus. I mean, that can be great, I'm sure. But for this case, it was like, what am I trying to say? Well, I'm trying to say that I'm not very good at saying things sometimes. And damn, I wish I could go back and uh, all those moments where you where you are saying, someone's saying something to you and you kind of freeze a bit or you slip into child mode and don't stick up for yourself and go, I can go back, then I would say this to someone. Oh, I know. We all have things that we... Oh, yeah. I'll probably do it about this podcast. I'll be in bed tonight going, oh, that's what I should have said that about trying to write a good chorus. Well, one of the things I like about The Right Way that you and Rob Kleiner created is a sense of space. There are pauses. There are moments where there's nothing between your voice and the drum track, which I guess he laid down on here. And his instrumentation is so like layered in this song, but so that you notice the space so much more because it's the absence of all that layered sound that catches your attention. And it becomes almost like a note itself. I get quite stressed out if I hear too much going on. So that's partially me just saying, I just want to have bass and drums. Like it is like first and foremost, the message of the song and the the vocal melody. And I am a big fan of bands like the Motels where, you know, those songs like Total Control, it's just like, there's just this space there. And for me, that's really captures me a lot. I am very stressed out by too much sound and voices and things. So I, Personally, I'm a fan of keeping things simple and putting their things there for a reason rather than chucking everything in there just and then figuring it out. So, but yeah, that's something I love about working with Rob is that we're both on the same page there. I find that like if I'm getting acupuncture or a massage or something, I can't relax because of the music that I'm hearing and I'm trying to notate in my head and it's like, I can't switch off. So wait, you hear you hear musical scores. You hear musical scores while you're getting a massage or acupuncture. Yeah, I can't switch it off. Like honestly, that's honestly the biggest reason why I avoid them sometimes. If I'm um, completely honest, I have I've struggled with a condition called patulous eustachian tube at the moment, where I actually have autophony and I hear my own voice and sounds loud in my head. Something that I've struggled with with eustachian tubes for a couple of years now. So I get a lot of distortion in my ear, and so sound. Sound and music are the most important, like it's, it's such a huge role in my life, but has actually been quite a stressful thing as well with sound. So hence keeping the arrangements simple because I physically, like I literally just have crazy tinnitus and a lot of sound can be very stressful, but it's my profession as well. Ever getting that, yes. And I have always hated the sound of people eating and things. So to hear myself, it's very cruel. It's also giving me some song content and things to write about. It's this bizarre Anyway, going back to the song, I do love space and songs, and I think it's about the notes that you don't play as well. Growing up, I had the best bass player, Cass. She's in a group called Tiny Ruins, and just the notes that she would choose were always so great, and it was never too much. That's why I sometimes like writing on guitars, because I just have to go back and, and not be as knowledgeable on the string, keep things simple. And Rob's good at keeping me in line with that as well, and is not overplaying Sometimes chords can just be simple and more effective that way. You were telling me about the video and your friend that you met in a bar produced it and directed it. And I watched the video and I loved it, but it has you in so many different settings, right? Where did you choose the settings? How did you decide what the storyline was going to be and how you were going to put that 
together. So the different scenes are representing different characters in a peaceful environment. That was the sand dune scene. We filmed out the Imperial sand dunes and beautiful head of Wallace. Like she's really took the time to look, scout these locations and find find this uh, you know room with this stressful like kind of busy wallpaper to represent that kind of busy state of mind and. She really thought about what each scene represented. It's a black and white scene where it's meant to be sort of almost like you're telling your story on a Hollywood talk show, a breakfast morning TV show, whatever you call it, and uh, painting yourself in an easel and, and how you see yourself. And, yeah, so there, well, there are a couple of <laughs> scenes that didn't make it as well. She really went all out and spent a lot of time and energy and effort into putting it in. And she filmed and, you know, did the whole thing and, directed and her friend Graham very kindly edited it and yeah that was uh, a lot of looking in the mirror taking a good hard look at yourself and in these different scenarios ones are kind of more like romantic scene or just hanging out with someone that you might probably be in a relationship with and they're holding up the mirror and you're looking at yourself and yeah just different different symbolic scenes there and yeah felt very very grateful to work with her she was wonderful and made sure everyone was comfortable and a great experience because I mean, I've done a lot of music videos, I think maybe about 23 now, but it just kind of gave me a little taste of what could be here and and the people and creative people out there that are so generous with their talents and time. And just, yeah, I felt like, oh, okay, this, these women are wonderful and it came out great and, and I'm, I'm thrilled with it. And I'd been in pajamas for most of the year, so putting on some makeup and a dress was a lot of fun. So let's talk about Elizabeth. This is a one of your older songs that you did with the Bullet Heart Club. Yes. So the song came first. So uh, the chicken and the egg situation. Elizabeth, the song was part of my second album, All in My Head. And 
from there it was turned into well a music video and after that the song inspired the show that I did that I co-wrote with Bullet Heart Club a woman called Rochelle Bright who was a fantastic playwright and um the other half of Bullet Heart Club Catan he came to one of my performances and wanted to work together we were brainstormed ideas and came up for this show called Elizabeth which is ultimately about what it's like being a woman in the music industry but worked into a story and this particular Elizabeth character is playing uh, people watching playing the kind of music in hotels and it's about the kinds of people that you see and observe and, and the challenges and and highlights and lowlights that you face as a musician but back to the song I wrote that one yes I think I wrote it in 2012 and it came onto the album in 2013 and it was just inspired by from there I mean I had been already playing for a while and doing music my whole life and it's just sort of about those kind of funny comments that people say maybe not intentionally that are harmful but sort of people thinking they have the right answer for you and what you oh oh they're doing so well and, and why aren't you doing that well you're so you're good but what, why is it not happening for you and you're kind of like just have to smile and like realize people don't necessarily mean to patronize but um just acknowledging that it can feel like that sometimes but ultimately you have a choice and you have to either get on with it and stay tenacious and figure out how you cope with that and then just about that and so Elizabeth is about um saying you know you've be- tried your best let it go keep going and the music video is inspired by uh, a b-grade horror movie called the brain that wouldn't die and it's about instead of a uh, literally someone playing a gig in the video it was this woman being created from scratch. And so the idea of, I still get messages saying, oh, that was a good song, but it needed to have a piccolo solo inspired by this song. And that's why it's not a hit. And I was like, oh, that's why. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a very autobiographical kind of alter ego song. How did you guess? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think my mom was actually, they call me Elizabeth. I think Lisa's sort of a short version of that, that she went with in the end. But, um, Yes, Elizabeth is my alter ego who is, yeah, observing, being mindful, struggling, but ultimately pushing through. And it's a B-grade horror movie in the in the play, is it? Is it? Oh, no, in the play, the, sorry, we've got The Little Journey of Elizabeth is the song, the music video, which I filmed in Australia, in Brisbane, before I moved to Australia, and the director came out with that concept. And then, like, I think it would have been four or five years later that we did the actual play. So it's based on kind of Elizabeth, the play or the cabaret show is talking about um, she's stuck in a hotel playing these musical wallpaper gigs, watching these different characters, having these moments with these characters, talking about the highlights and lowlights of being a musician. But this is particularly, um, they're my songs. They're about eight or nine of my songs worked into this cabaret show called Elizabeth and also um, Elizabeth takes requests as well from the audience, so any song, and then turns works that into the script as well. It's quite a nice outlet actually for the different musical experiences because yeah, there's been some frustrating ones, but also really humorous ones and lovely ones. What are some of the worst things that were said to you when you were playing in a piano bar before you you know sort of became a professional record maker? Yeah, you're allowed to swear, and and and, and I also want to know what are some of the funniest things, not just the the nightmares and the horror stories, but also the ones that actually made you crack up. Oh, all sorts. One of the worst ones was when I was playing at the Ritz Hotel in London, the swankiest place. Someone puts a couple of had a tip jar, a couple of uh, pounds in there. This is in London, so pounds, and said, "Oh, I've always wanted to 
fuck a girl on the piano. And that was pretty like unwelcome from me. I was just like playing away and it's like, well, good for you. Did I tell you I wanted to punch someone in the face? You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but at the time I was so young, I was like 19 or 20 and I just didn't really, it's, it's tricky. You have to pick the moments where you answer back and what you say, because I was living in London and I was finishing at one in the morning and it was like getting the night bus home and there's all these kind of factors. And now I, I think I would be much snappier and, and sassier with those kind of comments. And I have been. Another one was I was maybe like two meters away from somebody that for those Americans, that's not far, very close. Someone said, as I was playing, I'm not sure about your outfit tonight, love. And so I stopped playing and even though it was a kind of backgroundish gig, I asked for the whole room. It's just a little venue. I asked for the whole room's attention and asked if we could have a focus group on what this gentleman was wearing as well, as well as what I was wearing and how we can all, you know, improve. And so he went bright red. But, uh, yeah, he was wearing uh, some kind of golf-esque outfit or something. So, anyway, I enjoyed turning that background on him. And it's just um, I understand that as entertainers we put ourselves out there. But, you know, it's like was I wearing a sign just saying, you know, it's not, it's not a – feedback form about my outfit it's like so those kind of comments but uh, really really nice ones were people saying oh do you know who I am I met Rod Stewart once who made it into the Elizabeth story and I didn't realize I was only 17 and I was playing in this hotel and my musical upbringing was like a little bit varied I didn't really grow up listening to much Rod Stewart but I didn't realize at the time that he came and played chopsticks on the piano it was a little bit amount of alcohol um and told me he goes do you know who I am and I didn't he told me he was John Lord from Deep Purple, and I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then I Googled that guy, and he was had passed away. And I was like, I think it was Rod Stewart, because he also said that he needed a new blonde and laughed and walked off and put a rose in my water glass. And I just was took me, you know, a night to be, oh, I think it was Rod Stewart. And so we have that character worked into Elizabeth as well. So, yeah, and just – um. A nice moment was when someone asked for a Lisa Crawley song and they didn't know that that was me. So that was, that was lovely. <laughs> like, they go, oh, oh, they'd heard that song on the radio. So yeah, that was, that was a nice moment. So um, there's kind of pros and cons to playing that piano bar setting, right? Because you're very, you know, connected to the audience and it can be really fun, but then there's this sort of negative when the audience oversteps its bounds of proprietary behavior. <laughs> One of the most common ones is, oh, you're actually pretty good. Why don't you go on that music? Why don't you go on Australian Idol or X Factor, thinking that that's the answer to everything? And I kindly tell them that I actually had worked on those shows as a piano player. And and if you read the fine print, it's very hard to own your own music. And that was important to me. And that I didn't necessarily have the big X Factor kind of voice. No, not everyone wants to do that. But I, I appreciate that that's the kind of go to people think. And they have nice intention when they say stuff like that, but it's also like there's more than one way of doing things, but that's a very common one. The fact is every time I have to go and do a national anthem, I am just riddled with anxiety. I've done probably about 30 or 40 national anthems now. And every time I go, I'm not going to let the anxiety win. And I just, I can't sleep for two weeks. And then the next time, you know, I do it. I've had many, many things go wrong with national anthems. I've been given two shoes that were two right feet, two sizes too big, all sorts of had to, walk onto the field and like, like that. And I've, I've had sound gear not working and everything. Like, oh, I'm not going to let that experience take over my next one. And every time I say yes, I'm like, why am I doing that? So 
expected from me. I'm, I'm much happier playing the piano for the contestants and just and, and doing my own gigs. <laughs> so that's the answer to that. But yes. I assume you've done the New Zealand national anthem. Have you done foreign country national anthems like Australia? Yeah, actually more so just as much as the New Zealand one. I was just kind of a national anthem girl. So Australian and the British one quite a few times. Oh, no, quite a few times, two times, both times. And something interesting happened. What happened in in England when you did it? It wasn't actually in England. I was flown to Australia from New Zealand to sing the English one for the English rugby team. And that was the time that I quickly picked up some shoes at the airport because I didn't really own any high heels that were fancy enough. So I bought a gown last, it was all very last minute, bought a gown and these shoes and then did the sound check on the field. And all I had were my Chuck Taylor Converse shoes and sound check. Everything was fine. And then I went to get ready. You know, I was just like self-managed. The other thing I had like a whole team around her getting ready and I was just kind of doing my own thing. And then I realized that these giant shoes were one with, they were both actually right feet and one was two sizes too big. I had to go onto this stadium field with two right shoes. People talk about having two left feet, but I uh, had the opposite problem. But I did it and I put toilet paper down the back of one of them and I just walked very slowly and it took the focus off singing, actually, the nerves that I had of singing and remembering the words. And I mean, God Save the Queen is a very short anthem, but yet my brain was just oh, so nervous about remembering them. So anyway, point being like those kind of X Factor kind of gigs. I mean, I, I've auditioned for all sorts of those kind of shows. And yeah, for me, I'm fine doing my thing. Is there any patriotism in singing another country's national anthem? I mean, you know, you're in New Zealand singing God Save the Queen, the you know, the British Empire that, you know, sort of colonized New Zealand. And and you're in Australia. And there's, as we talked earlier in the episode, there's, you know, a little bit of rivalry between New Zealand and Australia. Um <laughs> to say the least, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, I have to pay the bills. <laughs> and I'm also, <laughs> I'm also I like to think I, I, I'm international. I'm a, a talent of international level. No, I'm just kidding. But um, I was traumatized by my uh, childhood uh, eight months in Australia and thought I would never go back there because I was so teased my accent. But saying that, yeah, like I did the basketball games for New Zealand for a long time and course I, I definitely consider myself a kiwi and i'm proud to be from new zealand but i yeah uh, i'm not going to be too fast i was about to do a, an american one last year before covid for the anzac day ceremony um the new zealand anthem and the american one and i was I, again my, my first thought was no don't do it it's going to be too scary but then don't leave, let the previous experiences win and but I was like, the american one's so high but yeah so i i like a challenge but sometimes i have to weigh up the pros and cons they say the Star Spangled Banner is a hard song to sing. Did you find it to be so? Yeah, I would probably take it down. All those all those years of playing five-hour gigs, your voice kind of may drop down a little bit. <laughs> End up with the Tom Waits version, perhaps. The gig was cancelled from COVID, unfortunately, the, the Anzac Day ceremony. So I was off the hook there, but maybe maybe next year that will be my goal to, to do that. I don't want to be stressing out trying to learn every single anthem, but... It would be handy if you for traveling. I've traveled a lot, so to know the anthems is not a bad thing. Well, we're trying to get people to listen to the songs that you wrote here on Backstory Song. Yes, my own anthems. Not the ones that Francis Scott Key wrote, and I, God knows who wrote God Save the Queen. And I actually don't know the name of the New Zealand national anthem. I apologize. I should have researched that. God Defend New Zealand. Yeah, it's actually a really nice one. And the Te Reo Māori verse as well is 
is sung as well. So it's nice to acknowledge the, that as well. It's quite beautiful. I'd cover it. <laughs> anyway, Elizabeth is a sort of summary song for me about the highs and lows and ultimately like you have a choice to keep going or do you let those things affect you? And I think it's just been a reminder to pick your battles and to try and be careful who you listen to as well. Definitely always appreciate feedback if it's from the right people. But if I had listened to what everyone had said, my worlds have been so far apart playing in a pub at two in the morning on Saturday, being told that I'm not wearing sexy enough outfits to being at church six hours later playing in the worship band, being told that my skirt was too short for that. So that was when I was lucky in my late teens, I suppose I was really taking on board what everyone had said and finding it very difficult. And I had a lot of anxiety around that. And so it's been nice over the last you know decade or so to, to kind of be more confident and to yeah, stick up for myself a bit more. I think we're really glad that you chose your own path and are following your own heart's desire to be your own artist. And the songs that you write are great. Your voice is great. Your musicianship is great. I just cannot believe, I mean, how many instruments do you play? I'm just astounded at the multi-talented musicality of everything that you do. And you're an actress and a playwright. Like, you know, people talk about the triple threat. I don't know. Can you dance? Um, my whole upbringing was uh, towards a path of musical theater. So dance was a part of that. But I was always the dancer at dance class. And I would go like three times a week, but they were like, why don't you go and do a song as well as a dance? You know? <laughs> I went to a dance class recently you know, when it was safe to. And, and yeah, I was like, well, it's been a while. So no, I, music's my strong point for sure. I loved the challenge and once of doing a theater show again and learning an accent and that kind of thing. But anyway, We've been kind of workshopping it and I'm looking forward to maybe, I don't know, turning it into a web series or something. Like it's, it's it was a really fun show to do and we didn't really get the time that just due to my travels and things, the time and place where I was in the same country as the rest of Bullet Heart Club um, to really hone in on that and see how we can improve it and make it a stronger show. But yeah, it's very dear to me and it was a really fun experience and hopefully that will be, we'll do it again sometime or write something else. Well, one of my songwriting questions on this show is when do you know when the song is done and it sounds like elizabeth is still a work in progress or the play the song is done <laughs> yeah. though, right <laughs> the song's done the videos well done that was 2000 it's one of my favorite music videos actually how do you know when a song is done lisa when do you know that it's this is it i don't know i uh for someone that worries a lot and you know is, is likes to have things done properly some songs have stressed over for a few years. They're not usually the best ones, though. So I try, <laughs> I try and um, more so than ever, like it's been interesting in writing in LA and, and having to finish a song in a day and record that, that day as well. It's been like interesting lesson and letting go and, and figuring out what you could do for the next song and just like moving on. But yeah, there's definitely things that um, I come back to months later and go, oh, I'm not, still not sure about that line. So it's really about what your gut's saying and I try and make sure I'm not just procrastinating finishing the song as an excuse because I'm feeling, I don't know, I'm worried about what other people think. I just, yeah, try and make sure that the motives for keeping on working on it is, is because of my intuition and my, my heart says that it needs more work rather than worrying if a line is going to offend someone or, yeah. So I don't know. It's a good question. Let me know if you know. I have not heard the definitive answer and I, and I think that's, part of music and songwriting is that 
it is an intuition. I think you should trust your heart and your intuitions because I think they're very, very good and not listen to these people at the piano bar. Now, this song, Elizabeth, has has kind of a chopsticky feel. Is it played on a toy piano or something when you recorded it? It's How did you create that sort of toy piano sound? Is that by intention? You know what I'm saying? No, I'll have to tell the producer that it sounded like a toy. <laughs> and I'll go back and tell them that. No, I'm just kidding. It was uh, meant to be quite a disjointed uh, Rhodes kind of electric piano. It's my closest to a yacht rock. It's like a yacht rock meets this musical theatre 70s show. I don't know. Um, someone said that after I played that song, it sounded like uh, 70s musical theatre. I was like, I'll take it. Sure, why not? Air supplier, Little River Bandish from your part of the world, or more Christopher Cross and yes, uh, and um, what's the what's the one I'm trying to think of? Uh, Super Tramp. Super Tramp. Oh, Super yes, very Super Tramp. about you're the best thing in the room as the last song on this show and you are the best thing in this room by far by default <laughs> you don't have much competition for me that's for sure I have the cat over there um yes best thing in the room it's a fun one to make for sure it's a more funky groove for you i really like the funky groove and the fuzzy drum machine and the funky bass in this song. It just kind of grabs you. So that was a, a co-write with Rob Kleiner and he came up with the drum groove. Uh, I was just listening to some groups that I liked, Unknown Motor Orchestra and other kind of Leaky Lee and things like that. And just Rob came up with this drum groove and I started backing around with some chords and then he put the bass down and we talked about what the song could be about and I'm trying to remember how the best thing in the room thing came up, but I think I was maybe starting to talk about observing people 
Yeah, not specifically in Los Angeles. This was directed at somebody in Melbourne <laughs> who was always looking for the best person to talk to. So even when they were engaging with Hugh City, their eyes kind of look past you to see who else is around. In a way of trying to network rather than anxiety, I, I believe. And I mean, we've probably all been there. Sometimes I get nervous in situations and I don't realize that I look a bit like a meerkat, like peering around or, you know, trying to yeah, get flustered. If I have a birthday party, I know I feel a little anxious about my friends getting on and things, but this was about somebody that's always looking for the best thing in the room or the best person to talk to and making less of an effort with the introverts rather than the outgoing party people, I suppose. But it also for me could be, I don't want to put too much meaning on what it should be about because for me, like the best thing in the room could be the puppy in the corner like that's that's where you usually find me in the corner hanging out with the cats or or something like that so but ultimately it's just it could go into this deep meaning which you know it maybe stemmed from but ultimately I think when you hear it it's just sort of like a fun funky thing about I don't really say the word funky that often I don't think I could pull it off very well but it's it's a fun song about yeah you know, just seeing someone and deciding they're the best thing in the room and I don't know I like I like that it has a slight darkness to it as well which comes out in the, in the music video with the seventies horror. Oh, back to my sixties, seventies horror thing. And that's it's a couple of New Zealand comedians in the video as well. So that was a lot of fun to make. So yeah, Rob helped keep it simple and not overthink things too much. And I grew up playing, you know, roads and whirlies and things. So fun to do that. And my next EP will have much more of that kind of vibe as well. That's why I put that one out as a single and the, and the looking for love and a major seemed to work better as a unit. So I didn't include Best Thing in the Room on there, but it probably will be on my next collection of songs that I'm going to release, which have much more of that uh, moody sort of soulful vibe. I like a few things in the song. I like the vocalese, the baradadas and the ha-has and the things that you throw in there. I don't know if those, how that comes to you. I'm always interested in how people add vocalese onto their songs and the harmonies. Yeah, it's not something I've done too much of, and, and it's nice to uh, to kind of experiment with that sort of thing. It's something that you would do maybe instrumentally uh, when jamming with a band, but to do that, you know, it's like, oh, it's, I've always been nervous um, from jazz school. I've been wary of doing too many, I don't want to get on a big scat solo tangent or anything or get too crazy, but there's nice things to take from that, and you might play that riff all together as a band, everyone plays the same little line is like, oh, let's sing that as well and, and experiment with that. Other times you might just not know what to say. Uh, and that's okay. <laughs> Sometimes we need a little ba ba ba. We take on information as listeners, taking these lyrics. And sometimes it can be fun just to take a breather and have a little vocalese. Is that, that what you called it? I never heard that before. You know, it was Jessica Poland Vaughn who taught me that on this show. She was on um, The Voice. She was on The Voice. She does it in so many of her songs. And I was like, oh, I'm going to remember that word because it's, yeah, I, I love it when artists make up words because I, I feel like it comes from some sort of emotion, you know, and the sounds they make up all contain an emotion in them, in my opinion. And, you know, this one, I don't know, what's the emotion behind ba 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 It's like, hey, I'm just... Yeah, I'm just sitting here having fun. Or da, 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 you know, I had a song once that was on my very first album, and the whole chorus was ooze. 
just ooze, like a vocal ooh riff. And I got told that I had, that wasn't okay by somebody. You would never hear that on this show. We talk about that all the time. I love the ooze. I love ooze too. So what happened was, woo, 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 woo. Whoa, whoa, oh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I had this song and in the chorus, it was just doing, ooh, And so we're like, no, you have to find it. This is a chorus. You have to figure out what you're saying here. It's very important. And so, oh, okay, cool. So I tried to write these words to it and then performed it on a morning show, a good, a good morning show in New Zealand, a breakfast show. And someone goes, what happened to the ooze and the chorus? That was the best bit. And I go, oh, okay. I put these words together that kind of summarized what the song was about, but people were like, like maybe five or six people were like, didn't hear the ooze. So I went back to my ooze and, you know, I went with my, my gut there in the end and for the recording and had these beautiful harmonies and, and, you know, like more than ever with those, you know, bands like Mumford and Sons and with the Tom drums, we have a lot of ooze and like soundscape things now. It's, it's, it's lovely. And Beach Boys, you know, like lots of ooze. So I don't know why I was in the moment of, of thinking I respected that person's opinion and I go, Oh, okay, cool. I have to change it. And so I did. And then at least I tried it, you know, you're going to try these things. So point being, I've, I've let myself uh, try and have a little more fun with little sections rather than being too wordy or too serious all the time. And um, the title track for my EP, Looking for Love, has got an E-O-E-R, and that doesn't really mean anything. But Vampire Weekend, cool bands like that, they do that a lot as well, like make up words and, yeah. You can keep on making up words as far as I'm concerned and using your vocalese as much as you want. Trust your heart, trust your instincts, trust, trust your intuition, keep writing great songs. Lisa, I have to thank you for coming on our show. Is there anything you want to promote or tell us about? Like, we're going to see you on stage coming on tour? At the moment, I would just love to promote my EP, uh, Looking for Love in A Major. And that's out on uh, all streaming services. Bandcamp is obviously the, the method that helps us keep doing what we're doing because the, more of the money goes to the artist on Bandcamp. But uh, yes, just due to COVID restrictions, I... I'm seeing what's what will happen. I'm I'm gonna be doing hosting a cinema cinema jazz band for a film festival in Hollywood on the fifth to eighth of March. So I'll be doing music at that. I'll be doing my own versions of hosting piano karaoke, which is songs from the movies because it's a film festival. So I'm gonna have a list of songs that people can get up and sing. I love accompanying other singers. It's a fun thing for me to do. And I'm also playing regularly around the place. So please just get in touch and ask. There's there's often like restaurant gigs or anything as well, but I will be, I can't wait to, I just had my original EP launch unofficial thing be canceled, unfortunately, but um, yes, I will be looking forward to doing a show at the hotel cafe or something. So just keep an eye on my website. What is the website? LisaCrawley.com. Really easy for everybody to find. Thank you, Lisa Crawley. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, DJ Wyatt Schmidt, for making a great episode out of this, as you always do. And thank you, MC Owen, for all the social media support you're giving us. Follow us, please, listeners, on Backstory Song on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. We are posting about all of our episodes daily, a lot of stuff out there. And thank you all for listening to our show. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.